Well, I would invite you to take a Bible or turn to your Bible to the third chapter of the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, page 7, uh, 797 in our church Bibles. 797 in the church Bibles. If you're new, we've been working through Romans verse by verse. We've taken a few breaks, but the reason why we're here in this text this morning is, is because this is where we're at. So hope that is some, of some help to you. In just a second or two, we're going to be reading from verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. And while you're turning there, you should know that Leon Morris called Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following, specifically 21 to 26, he said, this is possibly the single most important paragraph ever written. And that's a sentiment shared by many, and I, and I think I'm beginning to believe that. The single most important paragraph ever written. Verse 21, chapter 3. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Just I'm going to quote from a part of a song. It says, Upon a life I have not lived... Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole existence and I stake my whole eternity. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you sincerely that our salvation is not, be is not because of our piety, but the perfect piety of Jesus Christ. In that truth, please teach us from this text break up any bad foundation so that we will glory in, our, in the cross and we will put no confidence in our flesh as you speak with a voice which wakes the dead and causes us to listen, conforming all of us into the image of your dear Son, our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We do not want to live in a world where the one in charge of it didn't care about sin, that sin was bad and unwanted and had to be dealt with. And of course, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has dealt 
and is dealing with sin in fundamentally two ways. One, because of his grace, he has dealt with sin at the cross in the person of his son. That he, this is 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for us in order to kill sin. Its penalty, its power over the Christian's life, and one day sin's very presence, and now sin, all sin can be forgiven only through his very own death. Because there can be no death of sin without the death of Jesus Christ. Now that is profound. He kills it by becoming it and dying for it even though he never knew it, sin. That's one. And two, God is dealing with sin by his grace by declaring to the world the message of the cross, the gospel, which says God will punish sin. Sinful people will be punished forever if they continue to reject God's truth that they are sinners and they cannot rescue themselves and therefore in need of his free offer of a rescue and a righteousness they could never produce, achieve in themselves. So, God has dealt with sin in the gospel and God is dealing with sin in the declaring of the gospel meaning we do not live in a world where the one in charge of it doesn't care about sin. So this past summer, I came across a little book. It's entitled The Prince. The title kind of grabbed me. The cover really grabbed me. But the author's name, <laughs> I haven't spoken Italian in a long, long time. It's, it's Niccolo Machiavelli. As soon as I read the title, that was all I needed. I needed to support the home team. I'm Italian. He was Italian. Okay. Picked up the book, bought it, read it. And this is what I learned from it, that Niccolo Machiavelli was a 16th century Italian diplomat and historian. And among other things, he wrote down what he observed in the rise and fall of, of uh, territories and nations and how king and prince, how they executed their successes or were defeated or they won a battle, but the victory didn't last very lo long and so they explained why. And in one section, describing a victory which enabled the king's rule to last for an unusually long period of time. This is what he wrote. One blow, all gone, no timidity. Timidity means the knife has to stay in the hand. One blow, all gone. And in many ways, that is God. One blow, all God. God is not angry with his children anymore. No knife in the hand. By the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. One blow, gone. And by that will, Hebrews 10, 10, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12, when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for sin, one blow, sits down, his work is done, no timidity at all. Now, as you take a look down at the verses that we read, it's fair to say that there's some parts of the Bible which are kind of loose. It's a bit easier to follow along as you read. The words aren't very challenging, and they're not really packed with meaning. 
However, there are other parts of the Bible which are tight and they're thick and they're hard to understand because there are big theological terms and concepts which are being written in those words. And unless you have a real rich understanding of those words, you may be reading it, but you're really not digesting it. In other words, you're not letting every word tell their whole story. And a passage like the one that we read, it is thick and it's packed tight and it makes us slow down, unpack it, and get to know the terms better. And then after all that, once you read it again, then you see how it all flows together. And you see how a paragraph like this becomes infinitely important to know, to understand, to enjoy if you're a Christian, to apply if you're not a Christian, or if you're a Christian. So if you look down at your Bible, the context of verses uh, 21 and following, which we read, are set in Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20. And the point from 1.18 to 3.20 that Paul is driving home in those two and a half chapters is basically to approve that, to prove that outside of the gospel, we are all damned. Look how he begins verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then what follows is Paul telling us how we all suppress the truth of God in a host of ways. You know, far beyond just sexual sin, which always seems to come up in Romans 1. And he tells how both Jews and Gentiles, chapter 3, verse 9, all are under sin. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous. The Jews were given the very words of God. They were chosen for that gift. Yet they did not live up to the standard that they we're given. And as Gentiles, we have the stamp of God in us, the imago dei, the image of God in us, meaning our conscience itself is enough to condemn us because whatever revelation we have received, whether from nature, from our own conscience about what is right and what is wrong, we don't even live up to our own standard that we know. So we have a standard in here. We do not live up to it. We just don't. We're inconsistent at best to what we know by nature and by conscience. Therefore, Paul writes, we all stand under the righteous wrath of God so that his argument is headed, if you would, for the landing strip in chapter 3, verse 9 and following. And just look at it there. It's an embarrassing amount of truth about the human condition. The, the very word of God, Old Testament, about every human being. It's a terrifying list, which means we need, need to spend a lot of time talking about sin. And that's what Paul does. Because if... And this is important. If the level of our depravity, our sin, is not a big deal to us, then Jesus and the cross won't be a big deal to us. Meaning, unless you come to an agreement to what the problem is, it's hard to come to know what the solution is. And be happy. And fall down. And worship God in the depth that God planned himself. God planned himself. To provide one sacrifice for sin by his son once and for all because of his great hatred of sin and his great love for us. So Paul spills a lot of ink so that the gospel won't be tilted towards some other problem. Which is to say sin is the problem. Sin is at the very heart of all of our problems. Subsequently we have to come to grips at some point with the exact way that God views sin so 
if you look at verses 9 and following, you're thinking, well, that's kind of over the top. You know, that's, come on. We may squirm a bit when we see them, when we read them. We might be trying to self-justify. I don't do that. Well, maybe a little bit of that, but I don't do that. And by the way, hasn't Paul ever heard of, you know, Doctors Without Borders or the JCs or, or Coats for Kids or other groups that do a whole lot of good in the world? This whole list here is kind of over the top. But Paul does not deny any of that. Yet he also doesn't deny. By nature, we seek to be independent of God habitually because we want to be our own God. We want to de-God God. And we do it our own way. So even the good that we do is twisted inward, which is at the very heart of idolatry. So there's a professor at the University of Texas. He grew up in a Christian home. He left the Christian faith, and as an adult, he came back. His name is J. Budzis Whiskey, and he wrote an essay, and the essay is Escape from Nihilism, and nihilism is, okay, there's, there's no morality uh, code, there's no moral code, and life is meaningless, so norms and rules and law, they're unfounded. You can just chunk them, and this is what he said as a Christian. I've already said that everything goes wrong without God. This is true even of the good things he's given us, such as our minds. One of the good things I've been given is a stronger than average mind. I don't make that observation to boast. Human beings are given diverse gifts to serve God in diverse ways. The problem is that a strong mind that refuses the call to serve God has its own way of going wrong. When some people flee from God, they rob and kill. When others flee from God, they do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. When I fled from God, I didn't do any of those things. My way of fleeing was to get stupid. Though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity that one must be highly intelligent at and educated to commit. God keeps them in his arsenal to pull down mullish pride. And I discovered them all. That is how I ended up doing a doctrinal or doctoral dissertation dissertation to prove that we make up the difference between good and evil and that we aren't responsible for what we do. I remember now that I even taught those things to students. Now that's sin. It was also agony. You cannot imagine what a person has to do to themselves. Well, if you're like I was, maybe you can understand what a person has to do to himself to go on believing such nonsense about God. St. Paul said that the knowledge of God's law is written on our hearts. That's Romans 2.15. Our conscience also bearing witness. I resisted the temptation to believe in good with as much energy as some saints resist the temptation to neglect good. And you understand what he's saying. There was a time when he said, law? No, there's nothing. And his own conscience in God's mercy was, was capturing him and fighting him back and the point is this unless we see the depth of our lostness as human beings and our rebellion against God then it's going to be really hard to glory in Christ as Paul says and put no confidence in ourselves and understand what Paul says next so here in the Bible verses 21 and following Paul speaks of what is true of every Christian so this is not true of every buddy in the sense of salvation but it's sense it's true of every christian that we are just that we are righteous before god 
And to underpin that truth, he uses the phrase, and look down if your Bible is open, the phrase, the righteousness of God is given four times in six verses. And the verb to justify is given two times. But not only that, the adjective just or righteous, that shows up one or two times as well. And he does it to demonstrate how a person is going to be genuinely just, genuinely righteous before God, given the terrible state that we've been told that we're in in the previous chapters. And to do it, we're going to break up Paul's argument in under four headings. We're only going to make it through three, and the last one only halfway. Here's our first heading. If you have a worship folder, you'll see it in the back. Number one, God's righteousness in its relationship to the Old Testament. Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So you see that little expression, but now? That means God is bringing something new. But now, at this point in the story of God's redeeming love means something new has come along and it's going to be set before the entire world. And this but now is not the next logical step in human thought. Okay? This but now is not capable of mere humans. And, and I, honestly, I was thanking God that that but now in verse 21 was from him and it wasn't written and now by a mere human. You understand what I mean? Without grace, without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, after that long list of sins in verses 9 and following and the whole of it from 118 onward, without grace... Those long lists of sins, by nature, we would say, and frankly, every other religion in the world already says, and now, you're going to get it. And now, you've got to try harder. If we're going to stay friends, you've got to try harder. And now, it's too much. We're done. Go. Leave. And think of it even more in human terms or human relationships. Take your pick. You've done this, and you haven't done that and now, we're through. And now, you're going to get it. And now, I'm breaking up with you. Yet, God, the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything, eternal and infinite and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom and justice and truth, God deals with sin, our sin himself. It's almost after all this sin talk, 118 and following, he says, but now I want you to go to your bedroom. I want you to open up your dresser drawer. There's a gift for you. It came at a great cost, but my love, grace, it spills blood for you. My son's blood. That's why I'm glad that the but now is not an and now. And it was written by God and not only by a mere human. So the first question we asked ourselves is, okay, what is this but now change? In the past, there was something else. But now, so what is it? Well, I want you to think with me. It's not uncommon to hear in relation to the Old and New Testament that in the Old Testament, God was you know, righteously angry pretty much all the time. But now in the New Covenant, this side of the cross, you know, all we see is God and his glory and his grace. I mean, that's pretty common 
It's a common way which people look at God in the Bible. So the Old Testament, God is angry at people a lot. But in the New Testament, but now, he's calmed down. He's softened up a bit. But that's unhelpful because it's untruthful. You see, in the Old Testament, we also read that God is slow to anger. He's not fist-pumping angels when the wicked die. He, he is rich in mercy. He does not quickly reprimand. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them. He knows our frames. He remembers that we are dust. The Psalms constantly praise God for his mercy and his patience. And what's that big word? Hesed in the Hebrew. That covenant love. That faithful love of God despite us. And the sacrificial system? That's grace. That's grace. And in the New Testament, there's more of that. But there's also... There's also a Savior, Jesus Christ, who speaks about hell more than any person in the New Testament. Now think on that. And the cross, which is about, what, 35 to 40% of the gospel record is the last week of Jesus' life. The cross gives us a picture of what God thinks of sin and how God determines to punish sin. And Revelation 14 it gives us a picture of God's wrath on sin. Just listen to it. Revelation 14, verses 18 to 20. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of uh, roughly 200 miles. Okay, so just picture this imagery here. Grapes are being squeezed. This is a picture of people on the last day crushed under the wine press of God's wrath on sin, unforgiven sin, sin not taken to the cross, so much so that there's so much blood that it goes up to a horse's bridle and it was flowing for a distance of 200 miles. It's imagery, but it's terrifying. So the idea of a nicer God in the New Testament who changed his ways from the Old Testament is extremely unhelpful. And frankly, if you think about it, it diminishes the cross. And in my right mind, and I suspect your right mind, in Christ, we couldn't stand anything that would diminish the cross. So the redemptive story in the Bible is the increasing of the revealing of God's love at the cross and God's wrath on sin. So God's love apexes at the cross. He can't love you any more than what he performed for us at the cross. And his wrath will apex in a person's rejecting of the cross on the last day. And if you take then this verse 21 as a word from God in light of the previous two and a half chapters, this but now Paul begins with then becomes huge. And what it means, you see it there, but now a righteousness from God has been made known or made visible apart from the law. I mean, don't you want to say thank you, Father? I do. I want to say thank you, Father. And it means that it's not that God's righteousness is now a different kind of righteousness, that God has eased up and he's lowered his standards since the Old Testament, but that it's been made known a different way. Apart from the law. And by the way, made known is the same Greek word in chapter 1, verse 19. It's, it's the idea of now it's been illumined. It's so clear. In other words, the structures which God's people followed themselves in the Old Covenant, 
or the Mosaic Covenant, or in the time of, of Jesus, the Pharisees had their kind of imaginary covenant with God. That's all over. Over in the sense that God's righteousness, which he has made known in the gospel, is in no way going to be based or rely on human achievement, human obedience, human zeal, anything that a person can do in their own power. And what's being said is, and thank God for this, here in the new covenant, which Jeremiah prophesied about 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, this but now, this righteousness from God, which we're in desperate need to solve our sin problem, a problem which Paul wrote for two and a half chapters, our desperate need to be just or right before God to avoid God's wrath has been made known apart from the law. Now, here's the thing. It's the same righteousness that God has always had. It's just di- uh, revealed in a different way. In the old covenant, it was revealed for the, to the law or from the law. In the new covenant, it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the gift of the righteousness of God. However, it doesn't mean that we can toss out the Old Testament. Look what Paul writes. After he says what he says, ha- verse 21, has been made known. Do you see it? To which the law... And the prophets testify. The word there is, is martui, martyr is where we get our word. Martuo, excuse me. It means to bear witness, to testify, to give evidence to. In other words, Paul writes, listen carefully, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if we correctly read our Old Testament, then that very, very old law and the very, very old prophets were pointing forward for a very, very long time to what was coming and now has come in the person of Christ and the new covenant. In other words, the Old Testament is pushing towards the gospel, pointing to the gospel, the Passover lamb, the scapegoat, the sacrificial goat, the bulls, Leviticus 16. All of it is going to come to an end in one person. And I hope you've noticed this. I bet you have. In our morning readings that we've either read together or are read for you, but we've been reading a whole lot of Old Testament scriptures to reveal the gospel in the Old Testament. And I'm certain you picked that up. And that's important now, but it's just as important as in Paul, for Paul in his day. And what the Old Testament does not teach is the Old Testament never taught salvation by obedience to God's law. Yet, when we read the Gospels, a time period uh, just a bit over 20 years when Paul writes Romans, okay, so when you read the Gospels, in the Gospels, 30-ish A.D., Paul, Paul writes Romans, 56, 7, 8, 58 A.D., somewhere around there. Also read 1 Timothy, also read Galatians, also read Colossians. Clearly, the Jewish majority placed their trust in their personal obedience. In fact, they had their traditions which usurped God's truth. And so they even had Colossians, uh, 1 Timothy, Galatians, they had add-ons to the Gospel. And Paul would write in Philippians, he's like, okay, if you want to play that game, if you want to play the I am more holier than you game because, if you want to play the confidence in your works game, if you want to play the boasting game, he writes Philippians 3, 4 through 6, he gives us this list of things that he was like, those are big boasts. And then he says this, as far as legalistic righteousness, if you like, as far as house rules, I kept them all. House rules. Our homemade recipes for righteousness, I was faultless. Externally, you couldn't condemn me. But it meant nothing to God. God sees right past that. In the gospel, God 
holds before men and women the standard of his righteousness in order to demonstrate the impossibility of keeping it by mere human effort. So the ultimate thing needed is surely not the blood of, you know, one more bull. That's the book of Hebrews. It works it out in great detail. I think we've sang this song once or twice. Not all the blood of beast on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. And human righteousness, I mean, think about this. All the righteousness of every human being that has ever existed, if you could just pile it all up, would that be enough to be right with God? No. No. That will never be enough to be right for God. It finally has to be the blood of Jesus Christ himself, which is why the gospel offends. Sometimes the gospel bores people. Because it tells us on our own, individually or collectively, we are not and we will never be good enough apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So in verse 21, Paul first lays out that us not being good enough for God is not a new thing. It's actually a very, very old thing. It's been going on since the curse. And God's righteousness revealed in the New Testament, the good news has its root in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is far more than just, you know, apologetics or some moral lessons. It is for the gospel. And I suspect Paul would encourage us to read it with that in mind. So our first point, but now, God's righteousness, which never has changed, it's never been diminished, apart from the law, has been made known. In fact, Paul would say, read your Old Testament. It's all over it. That's number one. God's righteousness and its relationship to the Old Testament, the first part of the Christian Bible. And two, second point, God's righteousness is available to all. To all. So there's no racial or intellectual or visual or economic or location distinction. For all. is available for all, but only by faith. Okay? The gospel is available to all. It's not localized. It's not socialized. You know, it doesn't work. Sometimes we think, well, that, that's great for that kind of person. But there's another person out there. There's no way. If I gave them the gospel, there's just no way. Paul says, no, it's for all but only on the condition of faith. Verse, verse 22, the righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, in English, the noun or the word faith is different than the verb to believe. They, they come from two different word groups. But in the original language in Greek, it's the same word group, which means this is a literal translation of, of verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have faith. Or this righteousness is given through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust. And then he goes on, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what Paul is doing, he's making the connection when he says, for all in that realm to the previous two and a half chapters that all have sinned. Jews have sinned, Gentiles have sinned. Everybody sinned, whether they have their Old Testament in their hand or not. Everyone is under God's judgment. But now, in great contrast, God's righteousness is given simply through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Because the, there's no difference. We are all guilty. We are all sinful. We're all in need of a Savior. And under the provision of the new covenant, God provides his righteousness to all people at the same level 
at the same level without distinction, but only on the condition of faith, by faith. Meaning, you know, the Gentile division and the Jew division, that's all breaking down. And here we are, you know, 2,000 years from that. That might not be a big deal to us. Okay, it should be, but if it's not, just look at the place that you live. Consider your town, your neighborhood. Everybody you know who is outside of Christ, this gospel is given for them, for all. So, you, so, so some people you know, they may be in trouble. They need the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Tell them that. Some people you know are very rich and you don't naturally get along with them. But they need the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Tell them. Some people you know are poor. Their greatest need, they need the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Tell them. The snooty, the quiet, the shy, the intellectual, the teacher, the glamorous, the complainers, the really grumpy people, the really ticked off people, the intellectuals, the self-righteous, your unconverted parents and grandparents and sisters and brothers and kids and uncles and aunts and nieces and nephews. They all need the righteousness of God on the condition of faith in Jesus Christ. Because this gospel is designed for all. You may be Christian. And you may be right now feeling terribly condemned. Remember, you have the righteousness of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no double jeopardy in the gospel. The gospel is designed for all because all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God means the glory of God is not our first place passion. It's not the center of why we live. By our words and by our thoughts and by deeds and by silence, we malign him. Our independence of God can be striking. But now, this righteousness from God is designed for all because all have sinned. So some of you may have massive troubles in your life. Some of you may think, you know what, I've got it all together. But you're not Christian. This same righteousness is available to all, to both of you. Some of you might have some huge burdens. Nobody else knows. This righteousness from God is available for you. And some of you may not think that you need that much righteousness, that you're, you're good enough. Paul's like, no, this righteousness is available for you, for all, but only on the condition of faith. Otherwise, you can't have it. And what this is, this is the globalization. This is the universalization of the gospel. Paul says, under the new covenant, it is for all because all have sinned. And if you believe this, then it's yours. Number one, God's righteousness revealed in the Old Testament. Number two, God's righteousness for all who have sinned. Number three, God's righteousness is in the gracious provision of Jesus. Meaning the source of God's righteousness now is only in the cross, in Christ, by faith in Christ. And this is big. You see those verses 24 and 25? Look how Paul works this out. These people, Jew and Gentile, who all have sinned, are, verse 24, justified freely. It's the same word as righteous in the Greek language. As in judge righteous in God's sight if they have received this righteousness from God 
by faith, because that is what justified means. But the word is richer in, in it's huge. Being justified is not merely to cancel the punishment, but to declare there is no justification for that punishment. So it's more than just being pardoned or forgiven. It's a declaration that there is no ground for the infliction or for the punishment at all for all who believe. There's a song that says, there's nothing too dirty that you can't make worthy. You wash me in mercy. I am clean. If you're a Christian, do not let anyone tell you differently. And please don't behave or think like this righteousness from God doesn't really matter. But there's more than just being pardoned and there's more that there's no grounds for any kind of charge because uh, there's, no, there's no sin to charge against, but there's more. There's no liabilities. There are no claims against you. No debt needs to be paid. Nothing is coming back to haunt you. Do you understand that? Because that's the way a lot of us would admit that sometimes we live something 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago. Nothing is going to come back to haunt you in this this relationship between God and his child through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to say it again. Nothing is going to come back to haunt you. Indeed, in the case of the law, justified means to be completely obedient to it so it cannot be charged against you. That's our standing before God. Meaning to be right with God would mean to be in a condition of complete obedience, to never have a sin, to owe God nothing because we've never sinned, that he commands to be righteous because it's already been fulfilled. Because righteousness, justified, is a declared legal standing that is the result of perfect behavior. But whose? Right? Whose perfect behavior? You know what I thought about after I wrote that line? I thought about the Easter hymn, Up from the grave he arose. Remember that? With a mighty triumph over his foes. One of them sin. Verse 24, all are justified, righteous before God in his own eyes, freely by his grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation, big word, to the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And this is where we need to stop because that word redemption and that word or phrase, a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation, <laughs> they demand time. And they demand attention. And I want to give it to it, and Lord willing, we'll do that next week. But let me just close by saying this. To believe in Jesus, to have faith in him, is a lot more than just admiring Jesus. Or, you know, he's really great in pickles. He, he gets you out of your pickles almost all the time. But it is the full belief that you are the all and all who have sinned. This is more than just intellectual. This is, this is elevated internal, external belief that you are the all and all have sinned. And you can be the all, verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Because the first move was God the Father 
down in your text, freely as a gift, by His grace, His absolutely free, undeserved favor and grace. This is God loving and God stooping and God coming to rescue. God giving Himself through Jesus Christ, bleeding so that His righteousness is available to all who believe. God removes His wrath on sin by His own action at a great cost. His Son. Okay. Our salvation is not grounded or constructed by our piety and ultimately, listen carefully, and ultimately, neither is our well-being. That's our day-to-day, year-to-year, decade-to-decade, everything past death. That is not saying go on sinning, that's Romans 6, that's foolish, but it is saying God's grace will always be enough. Now think it out. Apply it to everything. This is good news. Do not let anyone ruin it for you, beginning with yourself. How are you righteous before God? Only by a real faith in Jesus Christ. I've broken all of God's laws. I still do evil. But now God, by His grace, grants, gives, imputes me the perfect satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. As if I've never sinned, as if I've always done right, but only by faith in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ. No more condemnation. Peace with God. Rest. Rest from our labor as a means of getting right with God. I mean, do you want to shout? Do you want to cry? Do you want to thank God? Do you want to do something in light of that? What do you do when you get a gift? Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ has paid the full price of our sin. It's written all over the Bible. It's written on every Christian's heart. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for not fearing death and not fearing people, rather loving people and submitting to death. Father, please, because of this, give us a vibrant and stable faith Let the gospel be applied to all of our thinking in every area of our life, ever increasing, which quiets the mind. When we think about our future, that's the place where usually evil one loves to play his little game. It's not going to be enough. You won't have enough. You did this, and because you did this, now it's going to happen. Finally, it's all going to be caught up, and, and you're doomed. Help us to not believe that lie. That our righteousness is, is God 
God, your righteousness. And it cannot be defeated. So please, God, put away our greatest fears and give us rest and help us to be really good to each other, Christian to Christian and Christian to the world. Because as Paul will tell us next week, there's no way we can boast about ourselves in this little arrangement. All glory and all honor has to go, must go to you. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his glorious presence with great joy, to the only wise, wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>